Blog Talk Radio. State of Arizona versus Jody Ann Arias, verdict count one. We, the jury, duly impaneled and sworn in the above entitled action upon our oaths do find the defendant as to count one first degree murder guilty. I've been in the right place, but it must have been a wrong time. I'd have said the right thing, but it must have used the wrong line. I've been on the right trail, but it must have Good evening. This is Clear and Convincing with Michael Carnahan and Lisa O'Brien where we explore the most infamous cases in our country's history based not on the court of public opinion, but from the perspective of the courts. I've been running trying to up in my mind. This time the court will read the verdicts. On count one, the verdict reads as follows. We, the jury, find the defendant, Stephen A., Avery, guilty of first-degree intentional homicide as charged in the first count of the information. Good evening, and thank you for joining us for another episode of Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas. Tonight, in episode 13, we'll continue our look at the murder-for-hire of Farah Bakker Frada with a look at State of Texas versus Joseph Andrew Prystash and Howard Paul Guidry. In December of 1993, after allegations made during divorce proceedings angered Frada, he started looking for someone to kill Farah and threatened to kill Farah himself. Eventually, he found middleman Joseph Prystash, who agreed to find someone to kill Farah in exchange for a Jeep vehicle owned by Frada. Prystash found Howard Paul Guidry to act as the trigger man for $1,000. On November 9, 1994, three weeks before the scheduled divorce and custody trial, Guidry shot and killed Farah in the garage of her home. In this episode, We'll talk about the cases against Prystash and Guidry, their direct appeals, and post-conviction claims, including Guidry's successful initial federal habeas claims that resulted in a new trial in 2007. We are a live show, and as always, calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347-989-1171. And good evening, Michael. Good evening, Lisa. How are you doing tonight? Pretty good. Pretty good. I'm uh, happy that I was able to go get my hair cut and get actually a new hairstyle mm-hmm. <laughs> with uh, mm-hmm. phase one of Louisiana reopening. Awesome. Heck yeah. So um, shout out to Michelle if she is listening. Um, she did a great job. My hair looks really, really cute, and I'm really super happy with it. Awesome. I'm glad to hear that, Lisa. Uh, definitely, <laughs> definitely looking like life's getting a little bit more back to normal. Yeah, yeah. So we'll we'll have to see how we do with phase one. 
Okay. And hopefully we'll be able to move on to phase two, which I think is going to be the beginning of June. Absolutely. Um, I know then, that we had ours pushed back, but that's because, you know, he's still slowly, the governor's still slowly opening things, but, you know, it's, right. it's touch and go right now. Right. And then uh, this isn't on the outline, but Belmont Stakes will be run June 20th. Okay. Um, Saturday, June 20th. So for the first time in history, the Belmont Stakes will be the first race in the Triple Crown. They're also cutting back the distance and reducing the purse. Awesome. So they're so, so. so, so they're not only uh, they're not only um, they're not only changing the order around. They're also re- changing uh, they're changing the distance. The distance. Correct. Okay. Correct. And so, 2020, if a horse is able to win all three races. There's a possibility that there will be an asterisk asterisk next to that horse's name in the Triple Crown because he's not running the mile and a half. They're cutting it back to a mile and a quarter, I think. Okay. Okay. So, uh, And then Preakness Stakes will be October 3rd. And, of course, we all know the Kentucky Derby is going to be on September 4th. Okay. So it will be Belmont, Kentucky Derby, Preakness. Preakness will actually decide if there's a triple crown. Okay. Interesting. So, and I'm I'm hoping I've reached out to um, Natalie Voss so that, you know, maybe she can come on the show. I'm hoping she can. Hoping she's available, and we'll talk about not only the Belmont Stakes and the Upside Down Triple Crown, but women in horse racing because there are a lot of women in authoritative roles now. Um, turf riders, handicapping, uh, you know, on-air personalities who they're the ones who know the pedigrees and the distances and the workouts and the physical characteristics, whether the horse is a dirt horse or a turf horse or is going to make a good one or the other. So it'll be interesting. Hopefully she'll be available. She's Joe Neville's wife. Okay. And, and Jitterbug's biped. Okay. Interesting. So, I'll uh, I'll keep you posted on that, and that's going to be June sixteenth. Okay. Um, and then um, we'll probably do episodes. We'll probably have uh, Dr. Langwan, uh, Mr. Amo back before the Kentucky Derby in September. Okay, absolutely. That's always so, fun for that. Yeah. So I just wanted to, you know, I love them. But I've really been wanting to talk about the women in horse racing because when Absolutely. I was growing up, horse racing, everybody looked pretty much like Oscar Madison. Mm-hmm. 
and not the Matthew Perry Oscar Madison from the revival <laughs> series a couple of years ago. It was like the Jack Klugman or Walter Matthau Oscar <laughs> Madison. <laughs> so, and then um, I, I also want to take a minute uh, to say congratulations to all of the 2020 high school and college graduates out there. Um, I know this year so many things had to change and you couldn't do a lot of things, but you still worked very hard and you should be incredibly proud of yourselves that you've made it to the finish line. And for the high school graduates, you're getting ready to start your college careers. For the college graduates, you've made it to a finish line that's sometimes very hard for people to get to. So pat yourselves on the back. Right. Right. I I can definitely agree with that. (laughs) So, And then we have a few uh, updates on some of the cases that we've talked about uh, in the challenge uh, or the appeal of denial of post-execution DNA testing in Tennessee on behalf of Sudley Alley's daughter. Uh, The appeal is moving forward. The brief of Allie, uh, the appellant, is due on June 20th, 2020. And then in Stephen Avery, the state's response to Avery's appeal is due May 29th, 2020. And the state has also requested and been granted an expansion of the word limit. Huh. So, uh, because Kathleen Zellner filed a very, she got her word limits expanded. So the state is getting an expansion in order to respond to her allegations. Just a way to uh, make things fair. Correct. Nothing wrong with um, that. Of course, pro, you know, pro, pro innocence uh, groups are up in arms. They don't think that this should be allowed. Uh, it's not fair. They should just give Stephen Avery his new trial because he's innocent. And you know, the this is part of due process. Due process is not one side over the other. Right. It's both sides getting a chance to advocate their positions. Absolutely. It, uh, wow. Um, yeah. So, and then in Maureen Faulkner's uh, successful King's Bench request to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, a special master has been appointed. His name is John M. McClelland. I mean, John M. Cleland, and he is a senior judge in the Keene County, Pennsylvania. He was appointed as a special master to uh, do whatever is necessary to investigate the allegations of conflict of interest in Mumia Abu-Jamal's Abu case on uh, by D.A. Larry Krasner. And that was uh, done on March 3rd, 2020. There's no 
nothing scheduled with COVID-19. There probably won't be anything scheduled until uh, courts are able to reopen at full capacity and continue with business as usual. Right. And, I mean, this is definitely the first time. I can definitely tell things are getting back to normal because we actually have updates for once. (laughs) It's been a while. Well, and part of that, yeah, and part of that has been not uh, me not necessarily looking (laughs) or knowing that on our last update, a date is so far in advance, like Rodney Reed, Mm -hmm. that – you know, there's probably not going to be anything new, but I will I will get in the habit now on Tuesdays of uh, checking a little bit more carefully and consistently. And then Crystal Lowry, uh, she has sent a letter requesting that her sentence be reduced from 30 years, which will require her to serve. 21 years to a sentence that would require her to serve only about 10. And you and I were talking about that right before we uh, went on the air. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Um, but we'll we'll talk about that a little bit more later in the show. Okay, absolutely. That definitely. Uh... Can't wait to do that this uh, this uh, Thursday, I believe. It'll, yes. It'll definitely be a lot of fun to do that, for sure. Well, Correct. I say fun, but y'all know what I mean. It'll be it, – it's going to be very interesting. Yeah. Well, Absolutely. like I said, let's not – let's not um, – you know, let's not bite off more than we can chew. <laughs> Right, exactly. Right now, <laughs> or go off on that tangent. So, um, all right, so we're going to get back into, this is part two of our episode looking at the murder for hire of Farah Famita Bakker Frada. Uh, she was a humble Texas woman with three kids who married Robert Frada a public safety officer in um, Missouri City, Texas, mm-hmm. in 1983. Uh, the, their marriage broke down. Uh, Frada is very controlling. He doesn't have a – he's a misogynist. He doesn't have any, any respect for women. And um, he also is a, um, a, a bit of a freak. And he likes things done during sex that most people would go, ooh, ew, no. Oh, so, um, okay. and, you know, and it's really weird because he, it, it's, some of it is masochistic tendencies. In fact, mm-hmm. all of it's masochistic, which is, is strange considering his uh, need to dominate and control. Mm-hmm. But um, he, uh, I, I'm not even going to go into that stuff because that's not really the topic. So at any rate, the marriage broke down. 
Sarah got to a point where, you know, this was not working for her anymore. And one of the other things was that, you know, he had her get a nose job and a boob job. And then he said he'd be happy if she did that, and then he wasn't happy. So I think she came to a point and realized nothing's going to make this freak happy. And she was strong enough to walk away and did and filed for divorce in March of 1992. Um, As we talked about last week, initially, Frada didn't want custody of the kids. Uh, Farah was in, uh, supported pretty uh, liberal visitation. But then he began to resent paying child support. And more likely than not, it's because he perceived Farah's family as being rich, and so he felt that her family should be supporting his children. And he was very angry at the custody, at the uh, support orders of the court. So then he hmm. decided he wanted custody, okay. and he also wanted control. You know, if Farah wanted to move out of the uh, Harris County area, he wanted to control whether or not she could do that by putting a 100-mile limit on huh. where she could move or not move. Uh, right. Of course, her, you know, her father, I think her father had uh, probably just retired or was getting ready to retire. And so there was a slim chance that she might go, if her family went back to England, she would go back to England with them. But uh, as I understand it, they stayed in Texas after, even after Mr. Baca retired. So I don't think that was really an issue. Right. And um, Frada apparently arranged to have Joseph Prystash break into the house and terrorize Farah on June 28, 1994. Uh, we know it was Stash because apparently he told his girlfriend that he was living with and sponging off of, Mary Gipp, all about it. Um, and I think that was maybe Frada thought that if she was scared, she would want him to come home. And okay. that didn't work that way. Didn't that didn't work out? So, all right. So that's um, that's where we are. Of course, the Frada was also angry about the divorce allegations about his uh, quirks. We'll call them those. And so he found his middleman at the president and first lady gym in Humble, Texas, Harris County. His mm-hmm. name was Joseph Andrew Prystash. He was born in September of 1957 in Ohio. He apparently had some juvenile history. At some point, he joined the Marine Corps, but then he got a discharge because he got into a fight. I think he says it was honorable, but 
it may not. It probably wasn't. If they're going to discharge you for getting in the fight, it's going to be less than honorable. Maybe not a dishonorable discharge, but less than honorable discharge. And um, and then he also had a you know extensive criminal record. He claimed to have killed people. He committed uh, burglaries, robberies. I think he had receiving stolen goods. I mean, he had a pretty extensive record uh, in Florida. He requested parole be transferred to Ohio and then was revoked because he never reported his Ohio address or job information to the you know parole authorities in Florida. So he was uh, obsessed with working out. His Basically, his aspiration was to be a bodybuilder, and he lived off whoever he could in order to accomplish that goal. And in 1994, that person was Mary Gipp. And then Howard Paul Guidry, he is from, he's a Louisiana boy from Abbeville, um, he has quite a extended family in Abbeville. In the 1990s, he moved to Houston to live with his sister. In his early life, he was apparently a sickly child and he had asthma, but he did do some sports, swimming, things of that nature. Um, he also had a pretty extensive criminal record in Louisiana and then racked up a pretty similar history in Texas. Um, And he was one that when the police caught him, he usually would spill the beans and admit to everything he had done. So, um, he was younger, I think he was about 25. So I'm going to say he was born in around 70, 71 69, rather. So he's about my age, a little bit younger. Um, And then going back in the divorce, uh, Farah had been awarded the residence in custody. She was getting child support. And the trial on the divorce and custody was set for November 28, 1994. Uh, Frada had begun soliciting people after that December uh, 1993 deposition and he had a dual purpose he was going to find somebody to kill her and he was going to create so many leads that when it happened the police would not know what to do or where to go um, unfortunately he wasn't smart enough to realize that he was also going to create multiple people who knew that he was plotting a murder for hire And so, therefore, could testify against him at his trial and help the state prove that he was all along plotting a murder for hire. Uh, He had also threatened to kill Farah. Uh, He had a financial motive. The children had a college account that Farah had started for them. And from what I could see on his website with the bank information because they were in a community property state 
Frada had to have some say in distribution of the assets. However, all of the accounts were in Farah's name on behalf of the children. So all of the accounts were in the name of Farah in behalf of their children, you said? Correct. Correct. So he did not actually have any ownership interest because I know he's claiming Farah and, and her father stole all this money from him. And he right. never had any actual ownership interest in the accounts. His name was not on the accounts. If they had not been in a community property state, I don't think that he would have even had any any right to know anything about the accounts. Sure. So if they transferred money or did you know did something like that, uh, withdrew money, he had to sign off to say he knew what was being done, but he didn't own the money, so he didn't really have a say. Mm-hmm. It wasn't his. He claims it was his, but it wasn't his. And then there was apparently a personal injury settlement for the kids, um, which he thought he would get control of. He thought he would right. get control of the college the account. I'm remembering correctly. As her, the bank account. Right. Correct. He thought he would get control of all that, um, but I I think that Farah was smart enough because she changed the beneficiary on her life insurance. I think she was smart enough to you know update her will to say uh, he didn't get anything. This is my money. You know I did this. And it's not his, and he doesn't have any right to it. It's my separate property. <clears throat> so, uh, and of course, he he found out she'd changed the beneficiary after he killed her. Ha <laughs> ha! Too bad, so sad. So I'm guessing this was a, a policy through her work. I think she worked with American Airlines at the time. Okay. Um, so she had changed the beneficiary. I think she changed it to, you know, her parents or a trust for her children. Um, And that may have been why uh, the paperwork fraud is referring to and talking about when he talks about the accounts being stolen. That may have been what she and Lex were doing because that was in around August of 94, if I remember correctly. So, uh, again, it's it, it's too complicated and convoluted, uh, Frada's allegations, to really give him any credit. Perhaps in a an update, we will talk about some of his crazy allegations and stupid crap. <laughs> yeah, there's so, a lot of them. There's a lot to cover yeah. in that case. Yes. Um, so we get to November 9, 1994. Basically, what we know, Farrah worked that day. It was a, I think it was Wednesday. Frada was going to have the children that night. He was going to take them to dinner, and then they were going to go to to church at a Catholic church in Humble. Um, Bradley was doing catechism 
and Daniel and Amber were going to be going to like a uh, a church play group or children's group, and there was some kind of parents' meeting, which even though Frada had not previously attended the parents' meetings, he was going to attend that night. Around four in the afternoon, Mary Gipp came home from work, four, four thirty, five o'clock, and Gidry was sitting on the steps waiting for Joseph Prystash. When Prystash came home about 30 minutes later, he and Gidry left in Prystash's silver Nissan with a burnout headlight. Okay. Um, Prystash had apparently picked up Mary Gibbs' cell phone from her car, which she had left unlocked in the apartment parking lot so that he and Gidry would have a way to communicate with one another. Prystash and Gidry went to a grocery store near Ferris' home, and they made sure that the grocery store payphone and you people who were born after probably 1989 have no idea what I'm talking about, probably, but there used to be outside every gas station, outside every grocery store, on Random street corners, there used to be these little pay phones. You put in a dime when I was a kid and a quarter as I got hey, older. You'd be nice. And you can make in- local calls. Um, you could call collect. And I know several people who basically would call collect and say whatever they wanted to say and then hang up and whoever they were calling would decline the charges. And so they would get a free phone call until the phone company changed the system so that you only had time to say your name. Yeah, I remember that. I do remember. <laughs> uh, I'm, not, I'm not so young that I don't remember uh, pay phones. I was born in 90. There, you know, there, there are odd ones every now and then you'll see one. They mostly don't work. Um. But uh, this was 1994. Cell phones were not as economical or widely available as they they became later in the 90s. So they tested. They made sure the self the payphone accepted calls, and then Price Dash dropped Gidry with the cell phone at Ferris House. Um, at this point, Frada, after eating dinner, has taken the kids to the church. Farah has gone to a hair salon to have her hair cut, uh, apparently washed. Gidry, at Farah's house, goes over the back gate and hides in a playhouse in the backyard. Around mm-hmm. 10 to 8, 5 to 8, he calls Prystash on the payphone at the grocery store and says, she's not here. What do I do? And Prystash reaches out by a, by a uh, pager to Frada, who calls him back from the church office, and says, wait. So Prystash contacts Gidry and says, wait. Sarah left the salon after getting her hair cut without getting it cut, blow-dried or styled because she knew that Frada would be finishing up at the church and getting back to the house with the children. 
And so she wanted to be home on time to, you know, deal with the exchange, get the kids bathed and in bed or whatever the routine was for the night. Um, She arrived at the house. Gidry heard the car arrive. He came over the fence. He tried to enter through a door into the garage, but it was locked. So he waited, and when the garage door opened, he got into the garage that way and shot Farrah once in the head as she was getting out of her car. Neighbors across the street heard that and heard a scream and looked out in time to see Farrah fall. He then shot her a second time in the head. And I think at that point, the the witnesses were calling 911 because... At that point, they were reporting everything they were seeing. They gave a description of uh, the person they saw. They were never able to identify him as Gidry, but one of the descriptions was he was wearing dark clothing. He was African-American, um, although they thought he might be a white person with blackface, and he really? had a very, a very round head. And if you look at the pictures of Howard Gidry, He's got one of the roundest heads I've ever seen. Um, they, Gidry tried to hide. He kind of tried to go back in the backyard, called Prystash to come get him, and then he came over the fence. He tried to hide in the bushes. They saw him hiding in the bushes, and then they saw the silver uh, compact vehicle with the headlight out, drive up, Gidry get into the passenger side. They did see a driver who I believe they described as Caucasian wearing all black clothing. Um, The car drove away and they were never able to, like I said, identify Prystash and or Gidry as the people they saw, but they still got a pretty good look and their descriptions are consistent with what Mary Gipp described witnessing when they when she got home from work and they each left her apartment. They returned to the apartment. Gidry went to his sister's apartment. Prystash went into the apartment he shared with Gip. He emptied the gun and hid it case that Frada had apparently given him when he gave him the gun. And then he threw the bullets in the trash in the kitchen. Prystash also confessed to Mary Gibb that they what? killed Farafrada. Hold up. Hold um, up, Lisa. I need, yeah. to, I need to pause for a second. Okay. He hid the bullets where? He No, he threw the bullets in the trash can in the kitchen. But that's in his kitchen, in his... <laughs> Well, maybe maybe trash night was Thursday, and you know, again, this is something, and this is something that comes up a lot. People say, "Well, why would he do that?" Because, and the the biggest thing about criminal activity is that people who engage in criminal activity never anticipate getting caught. In fact, they tend to operate as though they cannot be caught. 
And there's also the fact that what makes sense to him in that moment may not make a lick of sense to us. True. That's what he did. And consequently, after he left, because he was, he told Skip he was leaving to go to the gym and collect a thousand dollars from Frada. And when he left, Mary Gibb immediately went to the trash, got the bullets out. She says she washed them off, which was kind of dumb, and then put them in a plastic bag and hid them somewhere else in the apartment. And then uh, she got the gun from where Price Dashes had put it, and she wrote down the model, the manufacturer name, and the serial number. And then put the gun back when she, where she found it. Um, Frada arrived at the crime scene with the children. He called the hospital and was very detached and very cold and kind of like, okay, well, how is she? Because I got to know if I got to bring my kids over there to tell her goodbye before she dies. Which is one of the most horrible cold things I've ever heard. About any murder defendant. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, one of the other things, one of the other cold things is that he arranges for all this to happen while he has his children at a Catholic church so that he has an ironclad alibi. Even though wow. in a murder for hire, sometimes an ironclad alibi actually looks worse because. It becomes evidence of planning. True, I can believe it. So um, he uh, he's questioned. He goes back to the police department and is questioned by police. Uh, the kids are left with a neighbor, and then I think uh, Ferris parents had heard about the shooting and arrived at the scene and had gone to the hospital with her. And then they went back and went and retrieved the kids from the neighbors because immediately after Farah died, a new custody battle began between Frada and Lex and, Be- Letty- Lex and Betty Bacher. Right. Um, after about 14 hours in custody being questioned, the police didn't have enough evidence, so they released Frada without arresting him. Um uh, Repeating some of the same material from last week, but it it bears saying Mary Gipp is one of the most despicable I've ever encountered in research. Mary Gipp had the ability on the night of November 9th to prevent Frara's murder. She knew it was going to happen. She knew that's where they were going. She could have called the police, the Harris County Sheriff's Office, and said, there's a murder fixing to go down in Humble. This is the address, because she knew Farron and Bob Frada. Or this is the victim's name. She lives in this subdivision. And police could have been waiting for Price Dash and Gidry when they got to the house. Good point. I mean, and it would have stopped the entire thing. She could have gone to Farrah... I said, hey, Sarah, maybe you need to start staying with your parents. Very true. Because Bob's been asking everybody and his brother at the, at, the, at the gym 
to kill you for him. Um, there are, you know, so many things that she could have done that would have prevented Farah from being murdered. Or at least made it much, much more difficult for Farah to have been murdered. And then, because Price Dash used her cell phone, the first person they identify when they're looking at Bob Frada's phone records and his address book is Mary Gipp. But when police talk to her, she knows nothing. She's Sergeant freaking Schultz. Huh. No idea what they're talking about. Um, at that point, Mary Gibbs started worrying about the gun being in the apartment, and Price Dash told her he had given it to Howard Guidry, and Howard Guidry was supposed to um, dispose of it. But he didn't. Um, Price Dash was also questioned about that time by the police, but again, they had no evidence, so they didn't. They couldn't arrest him. Um, they can't hold you for so more then, than six hours, right? Without charging you with something, and then you have to have evidence. No, I think you. it's I think it's forty-eight hours. Okay. I think they can. I think they can. Uh, hold you for 48 hours without filing charges. Huh. Okay. But he was denying, you know, like I said, like Mary Gibb, he said, I know, I have no idea what you're talking about. I I know who Bob Frada is, but I hate his guts. He's a vain, conceited, arrogant guy, and I'd just as soon punch him in the face as talk to him. I was at home with my girlfriend and her brother watching, and I remember that because I thought Katerina Vitt had very fine legs, and Mary's brother agreed with me. And the police went back to Mary Gibbs' apartment, and they were talking to her brother, and then she came home. They were talking to Mary and Keith, and... um, Price Dash came home, and Mary and Keith were both, you know, alibying Price Dash. Well, Price Dash comes home, and he loses his mind. And he starts talking about how police beat him, and how they mistreated him, and how, you know, they they were just trying to frame him for something he didn't do. And he said he called the FBI, and he made a report, and the FBI was going to put all of the Harris County Sheriff's Office in jail. Now, this is in November. This is not later. This is in November after he was initially questioned. And the funny thing to me about that is that he didn't give them any incriminating information other than committing perjury by lying to him because the statement was sworn. But he didn't incriminate himself in the murder. Huh. He gave an he gave an exculpatory statement as to the murder. It was all lies, but he gave an exculpatory statement as to the murder. True. I mean, so, imagine that. Of course, it was lies. I, I. So you know why the police would beat him 
doesn't make any sense. Um, At least not to me. You gotta realize, of course, the police beat them. They 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 go around beating everybody and just everything. Mm-hmm. They're terrible. Yeah. So, um, so nothing really, you know, nothing happens. They're they're trying to find evidence linking Frada and trying to find evidence linking Price Dash either as the trigger man or to find the identity of the trigger man. And so at this point in time, they don't know anything about Howard Guidry. There's no connection made at this point in time. Um, Mm -hmm. Of course, we also talked about in December of 94, uh, a police officer by the name of William Planter contacts Lex Bacher and offers to kill Bob Frada for Lex for the bargain basement price of $10,000. Again, as I said last week, I think that the Bacher's character, which Frada is continuing to try to assassinate, is shown true colors in how Lex Bacher handled this. He did not say sure because Planter said he was going to cut Frada's throat, cut his abdomen open, stuff him with explosives, and blow him to smithereens. Nobody would ever find. Frada would disappear off the face of the earth. And no one would ever know. And Lex Bacher, instead of saying, yeah, sure, let's do this, he goes to the Harris County Sheriff's Office and he says, some guy's calling me wanting to kill Frada for me. They give him a you know, recording device. He tapes a couple of meetings with Planter. And then they arrest and charge Planter. Um, and ultimately he was convicted but the Court of Criminal Appeals uh, found that there was insufficient evidence of murder for hire. Solicitation. So his conviction was vacated and he was acquitted. In March 1st of ni- on March 1st, 1995, Guidry and two or three of his partners robbed a bank in the Houston metro area. Uh, they were in his sister's gray escort, and they, uh, of course, police caught up to them. Motorcycle officers chased them. Uh, they then bailed out of the car and ran, and Gidry apparently was not fast enough. Perhaps it was the childhood asthma um, making it very difficult for him to run fast enough to get away from police. In his flight, he dropped a backpack filled with money as well as three weapons, one of which was a thirty-eight caliber revolver, charter arms, and the serial number on that 
revolver, according to ATF records, proved that that was a gun purchased by Bob Frada in 1982. Sarah's right. father also, Sarah had asked her father to hold on to the gun when things started deteriorating. And her father had held on to the gun until Frada requested that it be returned to him in June of 1994. And then apparently in patient of the murder for hire, he gave the gun to Joseph Prystash to be used to kill Farah. And Guidry, instead of disposing of the gun, and I think Prystash's advice was cut it up into pieces and throw them into a lake, a river, a bayou. And there's a lot of bodies of water around the Houston metro area. Um, And Guidry said he would, but Guidry, you know, always thinking, he didn't get paid his thousand bucks. Because after Frada was released by the police, he started kind of, um, what do you want to say, kind of maybe ghosting Prystash. And since the police had seized the $1,000 that was in his car <laughs> that was supposed to be paid for the hit, um, Frada wasn't going to pay. And I think at one point he even told Prystash, look, the cops seized the money. I'm sorry. Nothing I can do. He also never transferred the Volkswagen that he promised Price Dash. Or no, I'm sorry, the Jeep that he promised Price Dash. So um, Guidry was arrested. At that point, they still hadn't made the connection between Guidry and the murder. But they had decided to have a come-to-Jesus moment with Mary Gipp. And they issued a grand jury subpoena to her. And they continued to talk to her and, you know, tried to get her to realize, you know, that she could be in deep trouble. But she continued to claim, disclaim any knowledge. But they finally issued the grand jury subpoena and they were going to arrest her. Because it was her phone used to make all the calls between the the trigger man, Price Stash, and I think her cell phone was also used in making calls that night to Frada. So she was on the hook. They had evidence tying her to the murder. And that's when she realized she needed to come clean. So she agreed to give a statement. She gave a statement. She hired an attorney. And she testified before the grand jury. And it was her attorney who turned over the note that she had written with the information about the gun. And it was her finally, like I said, coming to Jesus, that she identified Howard Guidry as the shooter. And then police realized that when Guidry was arrested, he had that gun. 
And so then they go and talk to Gidry. He was facing armed robbery charges. He had been appointed an attorney. There's a dispute as to whether or not he sought an attorney or invoked his right to have an attorney present when he was when he was questioned. Uh, the officers, the detectives, claim he didn't. And the fact that he was he signed a couple of statements, including his initial statement, which he said, "I was the driver. I wasn't the trigger man." And then he lays out the whole plan. Um, and then a second statement, which he admits to being the trigger man and identifies price dash. Um, so he confesses, he signs several acknowledgments, never says, I want an attorney. And um, then appears in a video reenacting the crime for the Harris County Sheriff's deputies and never says, I want an attorney. And, you know, I've talked to people about this issue many, many times. And I have said, if you say, I want an attorney, and they just keep on shining you on, the response to every question asked by authorities, police, FBI, wildlife officers, whatever law enforcement you want to say is your answer is I want an attorney. I want an attorney. What's your name? I want an attorney. I don't want to talk to you. I want an attorney. I don't want to talk to you. I want to stop this interview. Take me back to jail. You know, you can be very obstinate. And if they're recording, then you're really, really making a great record that's going to support your version of events. Um, I think this also predates the uh, routine recording by video of interactions. So, um, yeah. Basically, it's going to, it's always going to come down to your word against theirs in this era. But again, as I said, even without recording, you don't give them any information. And you just continue to repeat on the theme of, I want an attorney. I don't want to talk to you. I want to end this interview. Hmm. So. Um, and, you know, most most detectives, even back then, they know better. If you say, I want to talk to my attorney, they know they have to stop. Hmm. Because if they don't, anything they get from you is not going to be any use to them. Right. And, you know, the best strongest evidence in most murder cases when there is an absence of eyewitnesses who can identify everybody is a confession saying I did it. Um, So he confessed 
a warrant was issued for Joseph Prystash and he was brought in again, questioned, again continued to deny any involvement. They still had nothing really to hold him because at that point even Gidry's statement wasn't enough. Um, I don't think they had actually connected the gun to Frada yet. And they had nothing to put the gun from Frada into Prostash's hands. So uh, he was let go. He had been picked up off the street and had left his car parked in a Red Lobster parking lot. So uh, the lead detective Billingsley said, look, I'll take you back to your car. They got into Billingsley's car or his, you know, assigned Harris County Sheriff vehicle. And they drove, they were on their way back. Prystash wanted a drink and cigarettes, so they stopped at a convenience store. Prystash rode in the front seat. He wasn't handcuffed. He, uh, they got to Red Lobster. He got out of the car, and then he asked Billingsley if Billingsley had a coat. Billingsley put his coat on, and they were walking in the parking lot, because I think Prystash was talking to Billingsley during the ride and trying to figure out, was he wearing a wire? Was he recording anything in the car? Was there a camera? So as they're walking around the parking lot, Prystash basically tells Billingsley, y'all have it about right. Frada got me. He wanted me to commit the murder. I didn't want to do it. I got Gidry. I was supposed to get the Jeep. Gidry was supposed to bucks. Frada never paid me. Uh, Frada never gave me the money to pay Gidry. Uh, this is, you know, really just a horrible, horrible mess. And Billingsley was like, okay, he didn't arrest him again. He said, look, can you come down to the station tomorrow? Give us a statement. You're going to have to deal with this sooner or later. Make it sooner. And it'll probably work out better for you. And that's not bad advice. I'm not a police officer, and I would give somebody that same advice. True. You're going to have to deal with this sooner or later, and the sooner you deal with it, the better it's going to be for you. Well, price test didn't show up, and so they issued another arrest warrant, a second warrant, and they had the additional information from Mary Gipp as well as Price Dash's confession to Billingsley or admission to Billingsley. And so Price Dash was picked up. He was brought in again, and this time he confessed. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, though, to note that when you read the written confession that he gave, he tried to tell police that the vehicle he was driving was a maroon New Yorker that belonged to his dad. Mm -hmm. He knew from Mary Gipp that he was driving his own silver Nissan with a headlight out. And we also knew that he changed the headlight the day after the murder or a couple days after the murder. And then probably after the police had been questioning him, he took the car to Montgomery County 
because he had a brother-in-law relatives in Montgomery County, and he had them crush the car. So he destroyed potential evidence to keep it from being found by police. Um, Almost immediately after they were arrested, both Guidry and Prystash recanted their confessions. I think Prystash tried to resurrect the beating claims and Guidry claimed that he asked for his attorney who had been appointed to represent him during the for the armed robbery charges and that the police went left the room and one of them Hoffman came back and told him we called your attorney and he said, you can talk to us. Right. Even though they never called the attorney. Um, that was an issue at a pretrial hearing. And why don't we do this? Let's take a quick break. Okay. And then we'll get into the trials. Okay. Sounds good. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to uh, Clear and Convincing. With Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. We'll be right back after this. Every Monday night, join the bad guy, Brad Hicks, the money man, Michael Carnahan, and of course, the pretty boy, Sean Castleberry, as they bring you your humorous look at all current events going on in the world. It's the American Idiot Show live on Talk Radio 49. Every other Thursday night right here on Talk Radio 49. Join your hosts, Michael Carnahan and Cornbread, as they bring you the best wrap-up show in indie professional wrestling. It's the ASWF Aftermath Show, only on Talk Radio 49 and ASWF Wrestling's Facebook Live. Tuesday night, join Michael Carnahan and Lisa O'Brien for the Clear and Convincing Podcast, live on Talk Radio 49. A look at the most important cases in the country's history, not from the court of public opinion, but from the eyes of the court, every Tuesday night, live right here on Talk Radio 49. Michael Carnahan here once again telling you it has never been easier 
to listen to your favorite Talk Radio 49 shows on the go. If you have iTunes, you can go ahead and subscribe at iTunes, at Talk Radio 490, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, you can go on YouTube, the American Idiots Podcast. Or you can go to the Clear and Convincing Podcast if that's more your style. We have something for everyone here at Talk Radio 49, and it's never been easier to keep up. Facebook. I apologize for not chiming in too much. My dog's going crazy back here. I'm trying to keep her quiet as much as possible so that I don't I have know, a distracting I, dog in the background. I heard that baby crying. Yeah, I know. We're he's trying a puppy, though. Her. We're trying, yeah. She's, she's a cute little thing. Yeah. No, that's okay. I, every now and then, Remy makes a um, guest appearance. <laughs> Absolutely. When he's home, because I walk, <laughs> I walk through talking on the phone, uh-huh. and he thinks somebody's at the door or something. Oh. Because I'm usually so quiet. Uh, <laughs> okay. I got you. So, no biggie. Every now and then you'll hear him barking. So, question: Did we get yes. three different trials in this case, kind of like West Memphis Three? Well, they tried everybody separately, yes. Okay, cool. Just want to um, make sure. That was because each Price Ash and Gidry had both confessed. And to use their confessions, they could not try them with Frada. Nor could they try them together. Okay. Because the the confessions would make it pretty difficult to uh, have a jury separate. So they, okay. they just tried them all separately. They did try Frauda first, and the mm-hmm. second trial was Joseph Price Dash. And mm-hmm. basically, the prosecution had the confession, Gibbs' testimony, and everything about the gun that had been linked to Robert Frada. Uh, I'm not sure really what the defense was other than trying to uh, point out flaws in the confession, probably claim that it was coerced, 
that it was a false confession, that he had nothing to do with it, and also arguing that there was no evidence against linking Price Dash because such as the ballistics, the bullets were all too deformed for the ballistics examiner to say that they came from that gun. The most he could say was that they were consistent with being fired from a gun, a charter arms, or a couple of other uh, a couple of other types of thirty eights. Okay, Absolutely. based on you know what they could get from the bullets, and you know ballistics is not always. Yep, fired from that gun, no doubt about it. Couldn't have been fired from any other gun. You have to have basically a pristine bullet that doesn't fragment and doesn't uh, that stays whole in order to be able to see similar to what you have when you test fire a round. Uh And you don't get that a lot. Now they did find in the garage in a child's life preserver they did find a fragment that did have sufficient characteristics that they could say that was fired from that gun. But the rest of the bullets, the ones recovered from Farrah's body and another fragment recovered from the garage floor, didn't have sufficient characteristics for them to say it was that gun to the exclusion of all others. Um, Again, forensic testimony not being to the exclusion of all is not fatal to a prosecution case. It also does not mean that it's not admissible. Basically, a failure to say to the exclusion of all goes to the weight of the evidence and nothing else. So the jury can accept it or reject it. Okay, so basically up to the jury's discretion at that point. Correct. The jury decides whether or not it's strong enough to link. But I think with all the other circumstances, you know, they link the gun to Frada. Gip has seen Price Dash with the gun. She testifies about him taking the bullets out, throwing them in the trash. She had saved them, but then she got worried and she took them to a mall and threw them in the trash at the mall. So, you know, again, there were pretty strong circumstances, and uh, that corroborated his confession. Um, The jury, I I don't think they took very long. Um, I don't remember what the exact timing was, but it was less than three hours to come back convicting him of capital murder. And uh, people might argue that they didn't, he didn't get it, you know, he didn't get the Jeep and he didn't get the money to pay Gidry. So there wasn't really, it wasn't really a murder for remuneration, but you don't have to actually get paid mm-hmm. in order to um, be convicted. If you are promised to, pay, to be paid, that's that's where, and you agree to do the crime, 
that's where you're, you know, that's where you've committed the murder for the promise of remuneration. You don't have to actually get paid. Uh, another thing the defense wanted to do, well, when we get into sentencing, the defense wanted to offer in the sentencing uh, evidence that the prosecutor offered Price Dash a deal to testify against Frada and Guidry. And he was offering 55 years in the Department of Corrections. The judge found that that was not admissible. And, and Price Dash didn't take the deal. And he didn't testify. So it's a negotiation that didn't succeed. And it's not relevant to whether the prosecutor thought he was a future danger or not. But in order to, to try to uh, to refute the future dangerousness from Price Dash's criminal history, they were trying to say that the prosecutor doesn't even think he's a future danger because he was willing to put him away for 55 years and nothing more. Um and also, at this time, there was no life without parole in Texas. If you're sentenced to life, you served a minimum of 40 years, and then you were eligible for release. And in Texas, good time was basically not escaping or killing anybody. And you can get released. Mm-hmm. So uh, the jury, again, didn't deliberate for very long, as I recall, and they sentenced Price Dash to death. And then Gidry's trial was some period of time after that. I think his trial was delayed because when he tried to get his confession suppressed, because of the alleged lie told to him by the detectives, uh, an attorney who was who claimed to have been present in a hearing in a judge's chambers and claimed to have heard that one of the detectives admit to telling Gidry that they talked to his attorney and his attorney said that he could talk to them. Um, the attorneys who were representing him at that time who were also present realized they were potential witnesses. So Gidry's trial was continued and uh, a new trial date was set and new counsel was appointed. The next hearing, there was conflicting testimony from the detectives, from Gidry, and from these attorneys, and the judge basically uh, declined to suppress Gidry's confession because the attorneys the the whatever happened or whatever was said at the here at the at the in chambers conference wasn't really direct knowledge of what it, what transpired between Gidry and the detectives okay and as to whether or not the detectives contacted Gidry's attorney or told them that he contact that they contacted the attorney, and the attorney said Gidry could speak. They adamantly denied doing that. Mm-hmm. And so, um, 
that was, you know, that was the end. So Gidry's confession was used. They also called Mary Gipp, but as they did in Frada's trial, Gipp testified to statements from Prystash that she should not have testified to. Mm-hmm. And that caused a bit of a confrontation clause error uh, that would be addressed by the federal court. Uh, the state courts each found, as they did with Frada, that there was an exception. And in Gidry's case, they found that even though some of the testimony didn't meet the exception, it was such a small part when it's taken in you know con um, in totality with his confession as well as his possession on March first, nineteen ninety five, of a gun that belonged to Robert Frada and was consistent with bullets recovered from Farrah Frada. You know that it was a sm- such a small part; it was a harmless error. Uh, again, the defense in Gidry's case was trying to challenge the confession. They wanted to admit Gidry's testimony at the suppression hearing, which they weren't allowed to do. And once again, the jury went out and uh, in a relatively short period of time came back and Convicted Howard Gidry of capital murder of Sarah Frada. Okay. And um, then the sentencing phase, like I said, Gidry had a pretty, pretty extensive criminal history in Louisiana, and he had the bank robbery after Farrah's murder. He had some infractions while he was uh, in custody awaiting trial in the jail. And so the jury sentenced him to death. Okay. On direct appeal, uh, Price Dash's direct appeal was decided first. And they basically found that um, there were no errors at trial, the evidence was sufficient, and that uh, they affirmed his conviction and sentence. Gidry as well, no trial errors, and they affirm the conviction and sentence. Okay. Um, then state post conviction was next, and Price Dash challenged several things. Uh, he got, he challenged Mary Gibbs' testimony, and it was kind of. It was kind of strange. He basically was trying to say that since um, Mary Gipps' testimony against Gidry and Frada was confrontation clause violation, it was a confrontation clause violation for him too. But no, it's not because Mary Gipp was testifying about Joseph Price Dash's statements to her. Hmm. Not okay. statements of other people. So right. his was a completely different posture than Frada or Gidry. They were okay. basically 
you know, solid hearsay exception of statements against interest or and or uh, statements of a party opponent. Mm-hmm. So um, you can use hearsay statements of the defendant against that defendant at his own trial. Oh, damn. Um, yeah, it, that's, you know, I I didn't download or read any of the briefs from the um, from either party in this case because dealing with three defendants, there's just too much material. Uh, but right. one of these days, I have to go. I have to go read the the price briefs to see what their reasoning was. Right, and then point. Gidry, yeah, Gidry challenged the failure of the trial court to suppress his statements, uh, basically because the trial court did not, in its written reasons, findings of fact and conclusions of law did not say anything about the attorney's testimony regarding that hearing or conference, uh, chambers conference, whether or not the witnesses were credible or not credible or why they weren't credible, or even point out that they gave conflicting testimony. Now, I don't believe that that would necessarily be be. I don't think that that should be a requirement for anybody. You basically, you know, it's kind of like if you had to put all that into an order in a trial court, you'd have routinely have 50, 75, 100 page orders. If you have to analyze every witness who testified and provide explanations as to what you know, what you believed and what you didn't believe. Um, not only would that be unworkable for trial court judges who are, especially in a uh, a venue like Harris County, are probably pretty much overwhelmed, and even at this time in the 1990s, were pretty much overwhelmed with cases. Sure. Um, the uh, other thing that occurred to me as I was reading is that perhaps the judge did not want to say that he didn't find any of these attorneys credible or to go into any detail as to why he didn't find them credible because these are defense attorneys in Harris County. And if they perceive a judge in Harris County calling them a liar – that's probably going to cause problems down the line. And so I think he was correct in that what happened in that conference doesn't really say anything about what actually happened between the detectives and Gidry. Good point. Um, Yes, the attorneys seem to be corroborating what Gidry says happened, but they don't have any direct knowledge as to what actually happened. 
And so it doesn't really answer the question. And I think the judge more, more or less found Guidry not to be credible. And I don't think that that's somebody with his criminal history and the fact that he's facing capital murder charges and, you know, the fact that he's got a confession and he's facing the death penalty, I don't really think that that's a huge, um, unreasonable opinion. I mean, good point. Uh, that, you know, he's, he's, he's in a bind. And perhaps he'll say anything. And it really, under constitutional law, they didn't have to let him talk to his armed robbery attorney if they weren't going to question him about the armed robbery. He claims they did, but there's no evidence in any of his statements that they did because they have no information in his statements about the armed robberies or armed robbery. So, um, and also his arrest for the bank robbery and the weapons recovered in the bank robbery actually linked him to another armed robbery. Oh, damn. That he had yet to be identified. Oh, damn. (laughs) So, um, so his, uh, again, state post-conviction relief was denied. Um, they also, as I said, they found that the admission of Mary Gibbs' testimony and, and regarding statements made by Price Dash was a harmless error and did not play a huge part in the conviction. And a lot of things, a lot of people don't realize in state post-conviction um, most of the time it comes down to whether, if there's new evidence, whether a jury hearing all of the evidence, including the new evidence, would be able to acquit, a reasonable jury would find the defendant guilty. And in most cases, absent DNA evidence identifying somebody else, um, it's not going to, you know, what Price Dash said when they're all involved in this conspiracy is not going to be a huge piece of the puzzle for the jury. Right. So uh, his state post-conviction was also uh, the trial court denied relief, recommended that relief be denied, and the Court of Criminal Appeals found that the trial court's recommendation was supported by the record, and relief was denied. Guidry went on to federal court first, and the federal judge, in denying the state's motion for summary judgment on Guidry's claim, decided to hold a hearing. So all the witnesses who testified at the state suppression hearings were called again to testify about the suppression issue. One of the things is that Howard Guidry had always identified Hoffman 
as being the detective who said, I talked to your attorney, and he said you can talk to us. And the attorneys in the Chambers conference said the detective who made the admission was Roberts, not Hoffman. At one point, one of the attorneys said it was Hoffman, but then they were able to, the state was able to show Hoffman wasn't at that conference. The attorney also said Kelly Sigler was there, but at the time of the conference, Kelly Sigler was on maternity leave. So it couldn't have been Kelly Sigler. Okay. So there were some inconsist- there were inconsistencies all around at both the suppression hearing and the federal hearing. And one of the things I think that people don't realize, especially lay people, is that testimony in court is a response to questions asked either on direct examination or under cross-examination. So you can have two hearings, and unless the identical questions are asked, you're going to get additional information. You're going to get new information. Um, I think at one point at the federal hearing, Robert said he contacted a DA to see if they could talk to Gidry about the murder, even though he was probably represented in the armed robbery. And the answer to that is yes. Just don't question about the armed robbery. And also I think that the the testimony really wasn't clear and nobody proved or Gidry did not prove unequivocally that he asked for his attorney. Also, the other aspect that's never been challenged is that the the whether the confession he gave was true or not. He's never claimed it was untrue. He's claimed they tricked me into making it. So, uh, Long story short, the federal habeas court basically found Gidry credible, the attorneys credible, and the police officers not credible. And so she granted habeas relief to Gidry on a conditional basis, which was affirmed by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeal, and then the U.S. Supreme Court denied the state's writ um, which meant that Gidry was going to have to be retried. Uh, Prystash also went to federal court. Like Frada, he tried to use the uh, relief granted to Gidry to kind of bootstrap his own claims, and that was not successful. Um, he raised most of the same issues he'd raised on direct appeal and state post-conviction, and he was denied relief, which was affirmed by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeal, and his writ, which was filed in 2017, to the U.S. Supreme Court was denied. So then, 
1998, uh, before he went to federal court for habeas, Uh Hedry was among several inmates in the Ellis unit who attempted to escape. One inmate was able to use a bed sheet to climb over the wall or climb over the fence and get over the, you know, razor wire. Um, And he was able to escape, but he was found in a creek a distance away a few days later. Um, Gidry and the other inmates, however, were stopped by a hail of gunfire as they made their way toward the fence. Gidry Uh was then transferred to to the Terrell unit from the Ellis unit. The Terrell unit was perceived as being more secure than Ellis. And I think they were, um, Texas DOC was going to transfer all of death row to the Terrell unit. Um, There were some problems. There were complaints about the conditions in the Terrell unit. And in 2000, Guidry and another death row prisoner from Harris County uh, using shanks, which are the homemade weapons in prison, uh, took a guard hostage and carried on a 13-hour negotiation and only surrendered when they felt that they, the uh, hostage or the, the response team, kind of the prison SWAT team, was going to come in to right. the day room or common area or whatever, wherever they were. Um, So that was, those are, you know, he misbehaved in the Harris County jail. Now he's misbehaving on death row. Um, Not going to serve him well, nor does it uh, make him look like the poor, innocent, little wrongly convicted person who had nothing to do with a cold-blooded murder because he's engaging in violent behavior putting others at risk even in prison not a good sign Um, this prosecution they had of course the gun they had They couldn't use Gidry's confessions, but in preparation of the sentencing for his trial, his first trial, a mitigation expert was hired, and the mitigation expert interviewed Gidry, and during that interview, Gidry admitted to shooting Farrah Frada twice in the head. Damn. And the state was able to bring him in to testify as to Gidry's admission of guilt. Mm-hmm. And then they also, they used Mary Gibbs' testimony similar to the, to the use in Frada, where she didn't testify about statements Price Sash made to her, but she's able to testify to seeing them together, the vehicle they were driving, uh, when they came back, uh, 
seeing the gun, writing down the serial number of the gun, and uh, recovering the bullets from the trash can and tampering with the evidence and all those things. Uh, The defense, again, I'm not really sure. I think they were kind of, again, they they were in a trick bag because they have a confession. They have an admission. And so just challenging every aspect of the case. Um, and uh, verdict, I think it took the jury a little bit longer this time, but he w- uh, Gidry was convicted again on February 22nd, 2007. The sentencing phase uh, began, and on March 1st, the jury sentenced Gidry to death. He uh, then went to direct appeal, and in a seven-page decision, his direct appeal, uh, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeal, affirmed his conviction and sentence. Then he filed two state post-conviction writs, raising the same issues he raised in his direct appeal. Uh, Those were both denied. And the Court of Criminal Appeals uh, denied relief, dismissed his second writ as uh, abusive because the factors, the, the the claims were available in the first writ. He was alleging ineffective assistance of his trial attorneys for not uh, getting Gibbs' testimony completely excluded at the trial. But they never challenged. He could have raised that in his first writ because he knew that Gibbs' testimony came in, and he knew his attorneys didn't do anything to keep it out. Um, right. He filed uh, another writ in state court, but it was also dismissed as abusive, uh, that basically the claims he raised, which I don't know exactly what they are, because that particular writ is not available to me, um, but they were he hasn't shown that he couldn't erase those in the first writ or they based on new evidence. So then um, he did, he has gone back to federal court in federal habeas. That decision was rendered by the district court in April of 2020. So it's really not final yet. It's on appeal to the fifth circuit court of appeals. And then, of course, if Gidry doesn't prevail, he'll uh, be able to file a writ with the U.S. Supreme Court. And if the if Gidry does prevail, the state will get to file a writ because due process is available to all. Um, so that is not settled at this time. So what we will do is we'll revisit Gidry after the Fifth Circuit decides the appeal and after time for the writ to be considered or denied by the U.S. Supreme Court, accepted or denied by the U.S. Supreme Court, has passed. And um, I think Gidry has a brief due in June in the Fifth Circuit 
it'll probably be about two to three years, though, before the full Fifth Circuit proceedings conclude. So you said it'll be how long? About two to three years. Holy There's, shit. Well, no, this is um, this is the thing. There's time to prepare the record from the district court. Mm-hmm. There's time for both parties to ensure that the record is complete. Then the parties get to check the record out in order to prepare their briefs. And then once the appellant files a brief, then the state gets to check the record out and prepare its brief. Now, due to COVID-19, Gidry, I think, has gotten two extensions. Okay. Um, as well, in Fifth Circuit Court of Appeal, you know, they need more time. They, you know, get more time. Then the Pali, the state, will file a brief. Gidry will then have a chance to file a reply. Then the Fifth Circuit decides whether they want oral argument or not. If they want oral argument, oral argument is scheduled. And then after the oral argument, the panel, the three judges, they have to, you know, render their decision. And that can take three months. It could take a month. It can take a year. It just depends on the complexity of the issues in the case and the evidence. Mm -hmm. So I'm saying two to three years is about average with the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. Okay. Okay. I mean, Jeffrey McDonald had uh, the, the hearing in the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals in January of 2017. And they didn't render a decision until December of 2018. So, because they have to go through the record and they have to review the record or they have a clerk that does it. God, how I wish I could go work for an appellate court. (laughs) I would love that job. Um, But, um, you know, that, that takes time. It doesn't, it doesn't happen overnight, and it's an it's evidence of the fact that uh, claims to the contrary, the majority of these decisions in the appellate level are not rubber stamping the decisions of the lower courts. Very true. They're I mean, being if given years. You ain't rubber stamping nothing. They're being given due consideration. And the totality of the facts are being evaluated. I mean, there are some limits as to what they can do and what they can consider. Uh, but again, you know, it it takes it takes time, and it's a process. Mm-hmm. So, um, but yeah, we'll we'll revisit Gidry either in an update show. I think we'll probably schedule an update show toward. Maybe after the 4th of July, 
we've got a pretty full schedule, so yeah, we'll, maybe gonna, after the 4th of July, we'll do an update. Show for a little bit longer than normal, just because, uh, just because, uh, just because of this COVID shit, it may take a while to get enough updates to do a whole trial show. Yeah. But, uh, but I, I, like I said, I don't think Gidry's appeal is going to be concluded. So it, we may revisit this in season five or okay. six. <laughs> so, um, and then Harris County, Texas, they actually have multiple, uh, excuse me, they have multiple people on death row from Harris County who have exhausted all of their state and federal relief or avenues for relief. They have Linda Cardi, Charles Thompson, um, Frada, and now Price Dash because his writ to the U.S. Supreme Court was denied on his federal uh, habeas claim. But the DA, Kim Ogg, is not requesting execution dates. I don't quite understand why, but um, until I, I believe it's a she starts requesting them, um, mm-hmm. there won't be any any executions requested for those cases. And more likely than not, uh, what will happen is the once dates are requested, then additional claims will be filed. So um, we'll just have to wait and see what happens with those. Um, Ferris murder, the people affected the most were her, aside from her parents and brother, were her son Bradley, who was seven, Daniel, who was about six, and Amber, who was four when their mother was killed. Um, you got to remember that they were with their father, and then he brought them to the scene where deputies are there, lights are flashing, crime scene tape is up. Um, their mother was gone because she'd already been life flighted to Herman Hospital. Um, Bradley, I think, has kept everything pretty close to his vest. Um, he has some anger toward his father, but it's his dad, and he's still kind of conflicted over that. Daniel has internalized a lot of his anger and has more or less taken it out on himself. And then Amber, the youngest, um, has been the most angry, but she seems to have been uh, very resolute in her anger, she actually, while Frada was getting ready to be retried, she went to the jail to see him. And he basically shows no remorse, no concern for her or her brothers or anybody but himself. And at some point in response to something she said to him, he told her, I wish that you would go get Christian counseling to deal with your anger. And basically, 
Amber's response was, yeah, okay, the next time I see you, you're going to be in on Gurney. Bye, Bob. So she's a tough little, she's a tough little chick. True. That's pretty uh, rough. And, yeah. Um, they were raised by, they were raised by Lex and Betty. Um, they got custody, full custody, even before Frada was arrested or shortly after Frada was arrested. Um, I think there was a finding prior, even prior to his arrest that he wasn't fit to raise them. Um, but I could be wrong <laughs> on that. Um, most of that comes from news articles. There's no documentation. Ch- custody and, and divorce records in Harris County are sealed. So I can't access those. But, um, I mean, it, it's got to have been hard. Lex Backer died in nineteen uh, in 2018. I believe Betty is still alive, and of course Bradley Daniel and Amber, as I understand it, all live in the Houston area. I reached out to Amber because I really would have loved to have talked to her uh, because her interviews on 48 Hours and on Death Row were, you know, she impressed me as being so strong and resolute, but I didn't hear back from her. Um, she doesn't have a huge social media presence, so maybe in a year she'll see that message and respond. But Paige has had uh, a response, a, a message that mm-hmm. was very important. And Absolutely. Michael happened to catch it on Friday, and he contacted me, and basically right. a young lady named Katie who lives in Pulaski County, reached out to us. Uh, She was very concerned because Crystal Lowry has sent that request uh, seeking a reduction in her sentence uh, through the clemency process in Arkansas and the governor rather than through the courts. And she's somewhat concerned, and so we've – I've chatted with her on Facebook and I'm going to be talking to her a little bit more in depth tomorrow night. But we are going to record an episode where we interview her about her experience with Aaron Lewis. That's going to be and, uh, interesting, to say the least. Yeah. We are taking off next Tuesday for Memorial Day. We want to observe Memorial Day and um, – and have a nice day with our families, and uh, I'll have a nice day watching Netflix. Uh, but we want to, you know, take take a day off, and we will upload the episode. It'll be a bonus because it's not a, one of our live episodes. Um, right. But I think it's going to be really interesting to talk to her about her experience with Lewis and and Lowry. I do. I, I, I'm really interested in hearing this story. I mean, you, you got to take what and, you hear with her in this all, but my goodness, this shit right. is like, she's got documents to back it up. It's right. Prepared. And she it's sent me interesting she situation. sent me some emails. She's, she's, um, she's still trying to locate the police reports. As I said, I'm going to talk to her a little bit more in depth, but mm-hmm. 
I remember in my reading on Lewis, I remember about a problem with someone in Pulaski County. And mm-hmm. I remember a um, no contact order being mentioned. Hmm. Okay. So uh, this may be the person who uh, was in that situation. And like I said, um, Michael wanted to talk to her tonight. Yeah. And I, Michael was ready to talk to her Friday night. (laughs) Yeah. I wanted to go, to go ahead and stick with our schedule and we'll talk to her on Thursday night and upload the episode on, on Tuesday. So it won't be live. Uh, but I think I, I'm hoping her tone in the in the messages, she's very concerned. And I'm hoping that after she and I talk tomorrow and after we talk on Thursday that she can uh, breathe a little bit easier. Yeah, absolutely. I I certainly hope so. But, I mean... I don't know that I don't know that she's going to breathe easier until this whole situation is resolved for good. I'm not saying that well, it ever will be necessarily, but but unfortunately, um, Lowry, even if she doesn't get a reduction, she'll be out after 21 years, or she'll have the opportunity to be out in 21 years. Um, True. I think, as I said before we went on the air, she and and Lewis dropped the divorce action. Now, if they filed a divorce in another county, I don't know. But they dropped the divorce action. And as I said, I've got to do some more research and I've got to you know, get some more documents. But it appears to me that Crystal may be actually helping Aaron Lewis, who is trying to uh, pro, uh, trying pro se challenges of his conviction and sentence. He's sentenced for life without parole. So uh. it's not going to end until he leaves prison feet first. True. Um, but it's he's it's not death penalty, so the scrutiny is not going to be as great, and the opportunity for individual or agencies to come in and and try to help him is not as great. Although it could happen, uh, I would not be surprised to see Bryce. Ben Jett or somebody from Innocence Project and rolling okay. on his behalf and seeking DNA testing. He would not uh he would not be too well received here in Arkansas if he uh showed up and started working on this case. Well he was helping Stacy Johnson. True. So um you know and it's better than it's better than the um Barry Sheck, the Oompa Loompa. Very true. So, 
But no, Bryce is actually still, as far as I know, still working for the Queen's DA as a uh, conviction integrity chief. All right, so you ready to put a bow on it? You got any final thoughts? I mean, besides just how stupid these people are, not really. Okay. All right, well, let's go ahead and put a bow on it. Um, I return to work tomorrow. Yay or not. Hopefully we're doing – we're staggering people. So I go in Wednesday and Friday, and two other people in a different firm, because we share space, go in Monday and Thursday. So – um, yeah, and I had to move my desk from my nice little office, and so for the next three or four days, I'm going to be trying to get that all in order. Yay, joy, I love moving, not. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I'm glad I own this house because I don't ever have to move again. Yeah, I can agree with that. <laughs> so, all right. Thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter at O'BrienLN. As I said, Michael and I will be taking off next week in observance of Memorial Day but we will upload a bonus episode on Tuesday, May 26, 2020, at 8 o'clock p.m. Central. In that episode, we'll talk to Katie, a Pulaski County resident who was terrorized by convicted killer Aaron Lewis prior to his kidnapping and murder of realtor Beverly Carter. We'll also talk about Crystal Lowry, his wife, and co-defendant, whose recent request for a reduction of her sentence which was handed down after she pled guilty and testified against Lewins in his capital murder trial. Until then, have a great week and stay safe. Good night.